Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Sorry if I sound a little different. My last computer decided that its time had come, so I had to go get a new one recently. I'd been using the built-in mic on my last computer, so of course now I'm using a different one. Anyways, I hope the change in microphone won't be too distracting. Last episode, the King of Aksum, Caleb, led an invasion of the southern Arabian kingdom of Himyar in 525 AD. This was spurned on by the Himyarite king's persecution of Christian, the kingdom's ever-closer relationship with the Aksumite rival Persia, and, of course, the ever-present desire to monopolize the incense trade for Aksumite merchants. The invasion was incredibly one-sided. The Himyarites were crushed within a few years of fighting, and the king of Himyar committed suicide by riding his horse into the ocean. The Aksumites were now the unquestioned hegemon of the Red Sea, at the peak of their power. However, the funny thing about reaching the peak is that, while it's a beautiful view from the top, it's all downhill from there. In this episode, Aksum's long slide away from glory will begin, as Caleb's triumph in Arabia begins to unravel into an unmitigated disaster. Episode 21, The Aksumite Civil War By the end of Caleb's invasion, the Himyarite kingdom was a thing of the past. Caleb appointed a man named Sumiafa Ashwa to be the new king of Himyar, with his capital based in the city of Zafar. Ashwa was descended from a Himyarite noble family, which had been exiled from the kingdom after his conversion to Christianity. These nobles had been given shelter in the Oxmite royal palace as a way to spite their Himyarite enemies, until Caleb saw fit to send them back now that their enemy had been defeated. This might seem to contradict my last statement. I mean, if Caleb is appointing a new king of Himyar, that may give you the impression that Himyar continued to be ruled as an independent kingdom after Caleb's invasion. In reality, though, Ashwa was a thinly-veiled puppet of the Oxumites. His government, if you can even call it that, essentially amounted to waiting around for orders from his Oxumite masters, and then just doing whatever they said without question. Really, king is a totally inappropriate title for Ashwa. More accurate would be to call him a prefect, or assistant colonial governor. His sovereignty went about as far as the governing of minor daily affairs, like raising a small militia to aid in the occupation, and settling a few small legal disputes. But even this everyday governance was overseen by Aksumite bureaucrats. True power in Yemen lay with the two Aksumite generals who conducted the invasion. Rather, he was a former palace slave, turned royal advisor, turned general, named Abraha. The second general, though, was anything but. He was not a blood relative of the royal family. Abraha served as an incredibly effective general throughout the war. He led Aksum to its most decisive victory when he destroyed the Himyarite army at the Battle of Zafar. This military prowess earned Abraha a ton of respect, both from the top elites of Aksumite society, and importantly, from the lowly common soldiers. After the Aksumite victory, there remained an open question of what should happen next to the newly occupied territories. Sure, they had just appointed a puppet king, but how much power would he really have in the future? How should they treat the people they were occupying? What should they do about the Jews and pagans of Himyar? Should they be forced to convert? And if so, how harshly should the Aksumites enforce these conversions? These questions, especially the matter of the new Himyarite king, divided the Aksumite army. Leading one faction was Abraha. Abraha did not trust Simyafa Ashwa, though the motives for this distrust are unclear. It's likely that, in his time as a royal advisor, Abraha had many run-ins with Ashwa's family while they sought refuge in the Aksumite royal palace. Perhaps some of these interactions rubbed him the wrong way, and seeded a deep distrust, 
Or maybe he just thought it was a bad idea for Caleb to entrust a Himyarite Arab noble, even a Christian one, to rule over the recently conquered realm. I mean, you may think Ashwa is loyal, Caleb, but can we really be sure he will be in the future? What if he decides to start a rebellion against us, or stop sending tribute in the future or something? Just because he's a Christian doesn't automatically make him your friend, right? In fact, religion didn't seem to matter much to Abraha at all. Despite being a fairly pious Christian in his personal life, Abraha thought it was a really bad idea to try and enforce the conversion of Christianity on the conquered Himurites. Rather, he believed that they should wait until the occupation was more stable, then start encouraging conversion, rather than kicking down synagogue doors and demanding that they submit to the Abuna. Arya, the other occupying general, thought differently. In his view, Ashwa was a Christian, and that made him an ally, pure and simple. After all, the war for Himyar had not just been another war of conquest, but a religious crusade to avenge the persecution of Najran. To Arya, the forced conversion of the Jews and pagans of Himyar was the true objective, and everything else came second. If Ashra was an ally in his objective of kicking down every synagogue door in Yemen, it was good enough for Arya. Tensions came to a head between the generals when Arya began a campaign of terror in the Himyarite countryside. His army marauded from village to village, demanding conversion or death. While a village's conversion would see most of it be spared, the town's religious center would be looted of all of its valuables regardless, which were then broken down for all their worth and sent back to Caleb as tribute. Abraha was furious at these attacks. Not only was he mad that Ariat was certainly going to drum up resentment against the occupation from the locals, but he also had more selfish reasons for opposing these raids. Remember, these armies that Caleb raised were the largest in Aksumite history, enormous by any standard. And the thing about enormous armies is that they're pretty expensive. In raising this army, Caleb had bankrupted the royal treasury, meaning that he now had no money left to pay his soldiers' salaries. No big deal. This was commonplace in ancient warfare, and it's not like the Aksumites had consistently paid their soldiers in previous wars anyways. So, in order to pay his soldiers, Abraha took to do what they had done in the past, a fair bit of looting and pillaging. Abraha would regularly have his army make the rounds between Himyarite villages, and demand that they, calmly and peacefully, surrender all their valuables. This raiding policy made him incredibly popular among the common soldiers, because, you know, giving your poor, inconsistently paid soldiers a fair bit of loot is a pretty good way to make them like you. This worked pretty effectively. Abraha's looting proved more than enough to balance out his soldiers' lack of pay. But Ariat roaming around the countryside and burning villages like a crazy person was making it a lot harder. Locals who had previously encountered Ariat proved more resistant when Abraha showed up, making his raiding much less efficient. Additionally, all of those treasures that Ariat was sending back to Aksum as tribute were treasures which weren't being used to pay soldiers. Abraha's looting, though, equally outraged Ariat for a completely different reason. Remember, from Ariat's point of view, he wasn't pillaging like a madman, but he was doing the good work of spreading Christianity, and just happened to be looting the occasional golden menorah along the way. Unlike Ariat, who exclusively targeted Jewish and pagan population centers, Abraha was raiding Christians too, including those recently converted by Ariat. Remember, Ariat had promised these people that if they converted to Christianity, they'd be left alone. Abraha's indiscriminate looting was making this promise into a lie. So, to stop Abraha's raids, Ariat went to the puppet king Ashwa. He told Ashwa that 
If Abraha tried to raid anywhere around his capital, he should let him know and order Abraha to turn around. Abraha, while making one of his usual rounds of pillaging, tried to raid some villages near Ashwa's capital at Zafar, but was outraged when Ashwa appeared with Ariat and ordered him to make haste in the opposite direction. Abraha already distrusted Ashwa, so this supposed puppet king giving him orders must have really raised his ire. In a huff of anger, Abraha decided that he would obey. Kind of. Instead of Zafar, he would set up his own personal capital in the city of Sana'a, and begin raiding the villages around there instead. There, he could hoard the treasures from these raids, and ensure that they were used to pay his soldiers' salaries instead of being sent back to Oxum. This decision, to set up a capital for himself, was a really big deal. And the decision to withhold the wealth from pillaging instead of sending at least a little bit back to Caleb as tribute was even bigger. By setting up a new capital where he could do whatever he wanted away from the eyes of Caleb and Ariat, he was basically declaring himself the de facto King of Sana'a. To make an understatement, Ariat was peeved. His brother, Caleb, had entrusted this former slave to a position leading the army, and he repaid him by basically committing treason? Ariat immediately set sail for Oxum to tell Caleb of this brewing treachery in Sana'a. However, upon arriving in his brother's court, Ariat was disappointed by Caleb's response. While Caleb was aware and cautious of the danger posed by Abraha's growing power, he seems to have responded to this news in an almost indifferent manner. Remember, Caleb and Abraha were really close. Abraha had been the one to teach Caleb the basics of governing when he was young, and had become one of his closest and most trusted personal friends. Considering that Caleb had appointed Abraha to a generalship, a position usually reserved for royal family members, it's safe to assume that he viewed Abraha as basically part of the family. While Ariot's accusations were serious, Caleb had still not been given enough of a reason to doubt his longtime trusted ally and friend. Instead, he wanted to hear Abraha's side of the story as well before he did anything. So, Caleb sent an ambassador to Sana'a, who essentially told Abraha that the king was aware of his independent collection of wealth, and he expected such a loyal general to give up his tributary wealth to the royal treasury immediately. However, Abraha was paranoid about the possibility of Ariat trying to undermine him. He didn't believe this ambassador was legitimate, or even from Caleb, and instead suspected that the diplomat was a spy. So, instead of sending him back to Oxum with tribute, Abraha sent the ambassador into a prison cell. However, as we know, this ambassador was legitimate, and imprisoning an ambassador, especially one from your own king, is never a very good look. After Abraha had imprisoned the ambassador, Caleb had no choice but to concede that Ariot's accusations were legitimate. With great solemnity, Caleb ordered his brother to lead a military expedition to Sana'a to bring Abraha to justice. In the year 526, with the bulk of the Oxumite army at his command, Ariat marched on Sana'a. Once outside the city's gates, it became clear to everyone how different these two armies were. Ariat's army was composed of fresh volunteers and conscripts from East Africa, mixed in with a few veterans from the campaign against Himyar. Abraha's army was significantly smaller, and composed only of the remains of his old invasion force. Experienced veterans on the one hand, but homesick and weary men on the other. Abraha's army exited from the gates of Sana'a and prepared to meet their foe in fierce combat outside the wall. Ariat, despite the superior size of his force, proved unable to secure a true victory. The initial clashes instead ended in a stalemate, 
with neither side gaining a decisive upper hand on the other. This, however, was fine for Ariad. After all, he possessed a larger force. If the battle was to become a war of attrition, he would emerge the victor. Abraha, sensing that this was a fight he could not win, climbed to the top of the ramparts of Sanaa and offered Ariat a desperate challenge. He announced in a booming proclamation that if Ariat could defeat him in a duel, he promised that his army inside the city would surrender without a fight. Now, I bet Ariat knew that accepting this duel was a bad move strategically. He was already basically winning the battle, so why endanger his coming victory? However, the challenge was just one that he simply couldn't resist. He had never liked Abraha, ever since Caleb had forced him to share the glory of the conquest of Himyar with this former palace slave, and this disdain had evolved into a fierce hatred through their butting heads during the occupation. Ariat simply couldn't turn down the opportunity to kill his hated rival with his own hands, and accepted. Abraha descended from the rampart and met his rival in single combat, surrounded by a circle of Ariat's cheering soldiers. The battle was close, and it initially appeared that Ariat would emerge victorious. At one point, he managed to strike across Abraha's face with his sword, barely missing a fatal blow. Despite this setback, however, Abraha continued to fight on, and somehow turned the tide of the duel. After an intense battle, Ariat's lifeless body slumped to the ground. A chilling silence overcame the battlefield. The soldiers in Ariat's army, unsure of what to do now that their leader had been killed, simply stood there, paralyzed. For a few moments, each side simply looked at the other, unsure of what would happen next. Despite the fact that their general had been killed, Ariat's army still remained significantly larger than Abraha's, and if some of Ariat's officers could get the army under control, they could probably turn the battle around and still win. However, it's worth remembering how popular Abraha was. He had a reputation for treating the soldiers under his command especially well, and rewarding them with lucrative plunder for their service. So, with their leader dead, a few soldiers decided to cross over to Abraha's side. This few became dozens, then hundreds, and by the end of the day, nearly the entirety of Ariat's army had figured out which way the wind was blowing, and defected to Abraha's side. Now, this story is incredibly fantastical and is almost certainly either exaggerated or just straight-up untrue. But the defeat that it captured is very real. The mainstream scholarly opinion on the Battle of Sanaa seems to be that, rather than ending in a climactic duel perfect for a Hollywood historical epic, Ariat's army probably mutinied in favor of the more popular Abraha, and the story of the duel was later made up by these soldiers to cover up their betrayal. Whether the battle was ended by a dramatic duel or not, Abraha did defeat Ariat and absorbed most of Ariat's ranks into his own. Regardless of whether he earned it in a duel with his arch-rival, or through other means, Abraha would wear a wound of war across his face for the rest of his life. The nickname given to him by his subjects, Al-Ashram, means scarred one in the Sabaic language. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Abraha 
Abraha, now the undisputed military hegemon of Aksumite Arabia, marched on the capital of Zafar, where he overcame the city's meager garrison and captured the puppet king Ashwa, imprisoning him for the rest of his life. Now Abraha was the sole governmental authority in Himyar. Caleb didn't take the news of this defeat well. And why should he have? His brother had just been murdered, and his best friend had been the culprit. The army he had sent to crush the rebel general had joined him. In the wake of this defeat, Caleb became completely despondent. He had never even wanted to be king to begin with, and had basically been forced by circumstance to give up his true dream of becoming a monk. Always a religious man, it must have seemed to Caleb that God was punishing him for abandoning his clerical ambitions. But despite this setback, he would not give up, and Caleb immediately set to work planning a new expedition to retake Himyar from the traitor Abraha. In the year 531, a Roman diplomat arrived in the city of Adulis. He came to meet with Caleb on behalf of the new emperor of Rome, Justinian. The diplomat brought news that the Romans were preparing for war with their Persian enemies, and that Aksumite assistance was requested, no, needed, in order to guarantee victory. Persia was Aksum's main competitors, a middleman in the lucrative trade routes that flowed between Asia and Europe. Aksumite merchant fleets were engaged in a fierce competition with their Persian rivals that basically amounted to an undeclared naval war, so why not commit some troops to aid Rome in their struggle against their mutual enemies? In normal times, it seems that Caleb probably would have accepted. However, these were not normal times. Caleb realized he was in no position to commit soldiers into another man's war. Remember, pretty much his entire army had defected just a few years ago, and he would need as many men as possible for the upcoming campaign to retake Himyar. With this in mind, Caleb was forced to decline the request from the Romans to join them in a fight against Persia. While this decision was probably the right choice, the Romans didn't view it that way. From the Roman perspective, they had aided Caleb in his war with Himyar, so this wasn't so much a polite request as it was cashing in a favor. So, this refusal really deteriorated the trust between these two empires. I mean, why should the Romans ever help the Oxumites again, when the Oxumites never helped them, right? While relations between Rome and Oxum would remain cordial for the foreseeable future, the tight-knit military alliance of the 5th and 6th centuries would simply never be the same. However, things really deteriorated after the Romans sent a similar message to Abraha, and got way worse when he chose to accept. In the end, Abraha really didn't do too much to aid the Roman cause. He just raided a few towns in the Persian territory of Mazun and captured a few ships. But just the fact that he provided any support at all was good enough for the Romans. In what was truly the final nail in the coffin for the roman Oxumite alliance, Abraha, and not Caleb, was now the primary Roman ally in the Red Sea. Caleb was not too concerned with the loss of his alliance with the Romans, however. He had bigger fish to fry, namely retaking Himyar from Abraha. Now, Caleb didn't have too much to work with. The royal treasury was pretty much empty after raising so many expensive armies throughout his reign, and most of Oxum's able-bodied men had either already done their service, or, well, were in the army that had just defected. With the very last resources at his disposal, Caleb managed to scrape together an army, which he ferried across the Red Sea to make war on Abraha. This army, composed almost entirely of hastily trained and poorly equipped peasant conscripts, was massacred by Abraha's well-drilled veteran force of professional soldiers. With now two devastating defeats under his belt, Caleb truly lost all hope. The notion floating around in his mind 
that he had incurred divine wrath by ruling as king was now a certainty in his mind. Finally sick of it all, Caleb decided to call it quits. In the year 535, he publicly declared his abdication of the throne, donated his golden crown to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and retired to live as an ascetic monk. From there, Caleb falls into obscurity in the historical record. So obscure, in fact, that we don't even really know when he died. In a weird sort of way, though, this is a happy ending. Caleb had been forced to the throne, given up his dream, lost his closest friend and brother, but at the end of the day, he was able to live out his last years peacefully poring over books at a monastery, just like he'd always wanted. In the wake of the decades of conflict that defined Caleb's reign, a new status quo would finally come to a point of stability. After Caleb's abdication, a man named Allah Amidas, probably Caleb's youngest and most obscure brother, ascended to the throne. Amidas, recognizing that his armies and resources were spent, and that victory was essentially impossible, made peace with Abraha. In exchange for Abraha publicly declaring himself subordinate to Aksum, Allah Amidas would allow Abraha to basically govern Himyar as an independent kingdom. This declaration of subordination was certainly a PR win for Amidas, but in reality, it was an empty gesture. The tribute from Arabia permanently ceased. Abraha would never send Allah Amidas any tribute from Arabia, and the Aksumite Empire was now, in reality, divided into two. In Aksumite Africa, Amidas ruled as king. Meanwhile, in Aksumite Arabia, Abraha was finally secure in his power. With no more looming threat of Aksumite invasion, he finally disbanded his army, and began domestic government as the new king of Aksumite Arabia. So, what are we to make of the rule of Caleb? Does he really deserve to be included in the shortlist of Aksum's most successful kings? Being charitable, Caleb shattered Aksum's biggest rival, made the empire the undisputed hegemon of the Red Sea, and brought Aksum to the absolute peak of its power. That surely warrants him at least being close to the top of the list, right? However, in the long term, this brief peak didn't last long, and cost Aksum a lot more than it yielded. In the end, Caleb's ambitions proved far deeper than his abilities. In exchange for thousands of lives and massive expenditure, the fruits of Caleb's conquest turned out to be the outbreak of a devastating civil war, the defection of an entire army, and the division of his empire in two. He had spoiled Oxum's relationship with his closest and strongest ally, and left the kingdom in a state of economic and civic ruin. Can we really say that Caleb left the empire better off than when he inherited it? I'd say no. Caleb certainly earned fame throughout his rule, though. Under the name Ellis Bon, Caleb is honored as a saint in the Tewahedo Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and Roman Catholic churches. His defense of the Christians of Najran makes him an especially venerated figure among Arab Christians today, and, as a result, is rightly considered Aksum's most well-known and prestigious ruler. However, the reality of Caleb's rule was, rather than a glorious conquest, a sort of swan song of Aksumite power. The Aksum of antiquity, considered an equal to Persia, Rome, and China, the hegemon of the Red Sea and the supreme naval power of the Indian Ocean, would never recover from the fallout that occurred at the end of Caleb's reign. While Aksum would experience its share of triumphs and successes over the rest of the empire's history, the overall trajectory of this great civilization's fortunes was one of decline. Join us for our next episode, when a mysterious disease originating in the rural highlands of Ethiopia goes on to become the first global pandemic, 
and as the government of Oxmite Arabia begins to unravel from the actions of one elephant. The History of Africa podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, like Aaron Lynch, Sandro, and Kevin Johnson. The show's editor and I put in about 20 hours or more of work into each episode, so your support is crucial in helping us keep the lights on. Thank you so much for helping us make the show happen.